Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Listen to a lot of Jimmy Spicer over the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months, actually. You know, Ventures is super. I mean, you know, of course, he changed his lowest lane to lowest line. And yeah. I spent weeks thinking that he was saying lowest lime with an M. But why? I don't because I'm fucking stupid. <laughs> no, like, <you're> not. <laughs> Maybe because it I, sounds like it. Uh, it does kind of sound like it, but then it, it like it eventually dawned on it's like, oh, Lois line, right? Like yeah. rhymes in a line and a rap that makes a lot more sense, and <laughs> it makes sense with the fucking rhyme and stick. Oh, I'm an idiot. But who's Lois? Then? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense either. No, no, Lois line because the whole thing about the Avengers of Super Rhyme is that he's Superman, and then there's Dracula and Frankenstein shows up, but he's Superman, and then there's Lois line. But why isn't it super line? <laughs> Draculine. I'm not here to dissect Jimmy Spicer. Actually, we are. <laughs> Actually, this is the only place in time in our lives that we can do that. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. <laughs> Welcome to Beastie Boys Part 3. Yes. Oh, we're about halfway through here. Yes, we're, we're well, at the end of this, we'll be halfway through, yeah, right? Yeah, at the end of yes. this, yes. And we're almost at the halfway mark of our Beastie Boys series, and um, finally we're going to bring up some Beastie Boys this time. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. That's a good sign. It's great. Man, there's a whole lot of backstory. They're just involved in so many pivotal moments that they just give the opportunity to talk about like so many cool moments, like not just in music history, but in American history. They're just there. Yeah. You know, they're one of those bands, kind of like the Dead Kennedys, you know, that were just fucking there. Yeah. There's a lot of context Mm -hmm. that we have to unfurl, I guess. And which is why this is going to be the longest series we've ever done. And uh, eventually, maybe like by, you know, six months from now, we'll get to license to ill. Because we're inching along, but I promise you, it's all going to pay off. It's all going to pay off and it's all going to be worth it. So when we last left the Beastie Boys story, the early punk and hip-hop scenes in New York City were converging, and out of that convergence came a new club scene put together by people in the worlds of art and fashion. 
See, as far as the hip kids were concerned, Studio 54 had been taken over by the lame asses. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the actual cool time in town had been moved to places like the Negril, which we talked about last episode. But they were also showing up in new spots like the Roxy and Danceteria. Yes, it's a perfect place. I mean, I think Adrock called Danceteria, especially like kind of uh, the closest thing that they had to an amusement park in Manhattan. Yeah. For the kids. <laughs> <laughs> They're teenagers. So yeah, so the Beasties, you know, Mike D, Adam Yao, Kate Schellenbach, and Adam Horowitz, and all their friends, of course, they were spending their nights partying at places like, like you were saying, like Rock Lounge. They were starting there. That's where they met DJ Anita Sarko. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, of course. And even though they were technically underage, you know, they were about 17, 18, and drinking age was 19 at the time. And then it changed to 21 a couple years later, which is funny because Adrock kept like, they kept making it higher. <laughs> and he kept being like, I finally made it to 19. <laughs> oh, I have to wait a couple more years now. Now. Well, it didn't even matter because the, the staff at these clubs actually were kind of enchanted by these kids. Yeah, that is the thing about the Beastie Boys is that every it, we just hear that again and again and again. It's like, man, those kids were assholes, but there was just something about them. Yeah. That you just always are like, oh, charm. you come on. Okay. Exactly. That's what <laughs> Howie Montag would do. He was a doorman. So he would kind of be like, I'll forget to check their IDs. I'll just let them in, you know. So who cares? I mean, the whole point of it, I think, was because they loved the music. Yeah. They enjoyed the music. They were respectful enough. Yeah, they'll drink a little bit at the bar, but they weren't arrogant about it. And they had this, you know, as you said, fun, loving sense of humor that brought like some life to the dance floors, especially on a slow night. Mm -hmm. It was always helpful on a slow night because they would have fun. They would kind of take over the dance floor and they would like start a conga line. (laughs) And not because it's cool, but because it's lame, but cool. You know, the thing that teenagers do, you know, (laughs) so key. You know, and anyway, so they partied Danceteria, you know, because like I said, it was like an amusement park because it kind of seemed like more like a carnival funhouse ride. Mm -hmm. If you look on YouTube, you go in and there's like this huge building with several levels or or floors. You know, it's a really, really big space. And the first floor had this bar and a stage for bands to play and fun, like monthly variety shows that the Beastie Boys would put on later. And then the second floor was the whole dance floor. Where all the beasties and their friends would dance like New Order, ESG, Medium, Medium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hungry, so angry. Exactly. <laughs> and when they weren't dancing, they were usually hanging by the stairs in the corner, just checking out the crowd while and, and they would say every time the crowd like would be full, like dancing, there's always one guy, one random muscular guy in the middle of the dance floor just yelling, work that body. <laughs> Work that body to everyone and no one at the same time. You know that guy. Yeah, that guy's great. (laughs) Kind of. Because I remember I used to go out like dancing when I was like a teenager in Mexico. And, I, you know, there's always that guy at the dance club who's like, he's like, he's always dancing with his hips and his shoulders. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and somehow he's very oily for some reason. And he like, I remember he would like approach a girl or approach me like while dancing and like smiling and like never breaking eye contact <laughs> at all. And I just had to be like, no, no, no I'm no. okay. Thank you. Yeah. And but then he moves on. Yes. He goes, all right. And then just keeps going. Going to the next guy. <laughs> I feel like you've been that guy (laughs) no i have not been that guy but i've definitely like given the knowing nod to that guy like 
Hell yeah. And he looks at <laughs> me and goes, for you. fuck yeah, bro. Yeah. Let's go to work. <laughs> All right. And also they would hang out the Roxy. You know, that was a huge space. You know, you could fit like a thousand people there because, you know, it, it used to be a roller disco mm-hmm. or, a, you, you know, the roller skating rink with music and lights. Uh, I think they had a couple when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and then around 1982, it became like a full fledged like dance club. So like if you watch that movie Beat Street, which is on all the me TVs and <laughs> channels like that all the time, a, random antenna channels, that's that's where I used to watch it. There's a scene where DJ Africa Bambetta performs there with the Soul Sonic Force. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And that's what the beasties were witnessing at that time. Like Mike D talks about hearing Bambetta play records and hearing him put on like Tony Basil's like, hey, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. <laughs> exactly. And then yeah. switching the Apache if you wanted to. <laughs> and that was really impressive to the beasties, especially the Mike, because he mentioned that like he's like, I didn't know like hip hop could be like anything. Yeah. You know, it's danceable music that's not disco. That's hip hop. And it's great. And that's what he loved about it. Like a nice pastiche of like different styles and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. And that was why they started moving away from hardcore is because they are seeing these guys out there that are putting together every single bit of music that they love. Like they because the Beastie Boys had a very eclectic music taste, you know, all throughout their lives. And they're starting to see that, you know, you don't have to just go hard, fast in a minute and a half uh, and then be done with it. You know, screaming and doing guitar and hard guitars and shit like that. Like you can do fucking anything with hip hop. And that's exciting. That's extremely exciting. Yeah. Now concerning the punk scene, back in the early 80s, Blondie and Didi Ramon, they weren't the only people getting into hip hop from that community. While most of these people were exploring the genre as a new art form, they were doing it out of curiosity, respect, or in some cases, envy. Others in the punk scene were approaching it from a much more cynical perspective. And as it turned out, the most cynical person in the punk scene worldwide to dig his nasty little claws into hip-hop was the same person who'd taken advantage of the British punk scene right at the very beginning. And this is appropriate because, like I said last episode, the UK punk scene and the hip-hop scene in the Bronx actually have a lot more in common than the New York City punk scene (laughs) and uh, the Bronx hip-hop scene. Now, I suppose you could argue that this guy we're talking about right here wasn't entirely motivated by ulterior motives because it seems as if he did have some genuine interest in hip-hop. But, on the other hand... You'd also be hard-pressed to find anyone in the world of punk or hip-hop who had something nice to say about Malcolm McLaren, former manager of the Sex Pistols. Oh, yeah. He's the one who's like, you know, I invented punk, right? <laughs> I, that was me. That was me. Hello, Malcolm. I, I'm shaking hands and kissing babies. Yeah. How many times? This is the guy that shows up. And I think this is the fourth or fifth, maybe the sixth series <laughs> in which we fucking mention Malcolm fucking McLaren oh, he, and how yes. much of an asshole Malcolm McLaren is. He likes to put his hands in things. And you know what? Sometimes it's it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, like the time when he decides to go into hip hop because he goes, oh, because he goes on this weird cultural exchange like a field trip throughout the whole world Uh and one of the stops is the Bronx yes and he yeah so he met Malcolm Holman you know the owner of Negril and he's like yes please take me show me this Zulu nation that people are talking about (laughs) so he takes him to the Bronx and there Malcolm meets 
Africa Bambera and the Soul Sonic Force and and also the Rocksteady dance crew. And he's like, this is great. You guys are great. I'm loving all of this. Can you open for the band I'm managing right now? Bow Wow Wow at the Ritz. <laughs> I know it's a stupid name. Yeah, it's Can- it was like, is this I Want Candy Bow Wow Wow? <laughs> I don't actually, I don't know. I think Bow Wow Wow is I, I Want candy. candy. I thought that yeah. was a Pringles commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know just, much. I think it's like a new wave thing yeah I know yeah it's before my time yeah but they covered the strange love song I want candy but on the other hand Bow Wow Wow is such an inconsequential band that we don't really need to know it's okay and Africa <laughs> Band Bad is like sure I can I can do that I guess and so so all of this I think Malcolm going from one place to another like he really went around the world because he wanted to make world music mm-hmm. an album called Duck Rock <laughs> I know it's a stupid name. Stupidest fucking name. <laughs> he came up with the worst names. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was world music. So music from different countries, from different styles, you know, like it was very uh, interesting. Yeah. I guess is the best to say. There was some, I mean, I've listened to it a couple of times. It's kind of fun. They have some, you know, merengue. They have a little bit of salsa. They, and of course they have a little bit of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make a hip hop song. And so he went around asking like Bambetta, you know, Grandmaster Flash, everyone's like, I, I want to make a hip hop song. Let's make one together. You know, I'm the guy from the Sex Pistols. <laughs> and everyone said, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or they said like, are you the guy that ruined the New York Dolls? <laughs> <laughs> this is one and the same. Yes. So, but he did finally get the world's famous Supreme team. Uh, and they were this like fun DJ duo who like could rap and they had a popular late night show at WHBO. So I had to say it every time like that. W H B I. No, no, they, that that I don't know if that could fly at W H B I. W H B I like that. Oh God! <laughs> and so, so he made this song with the world's famous Supreme Team, and it was a big hit. Huge hit, especially hit. in the UK. It went to number nine. So for most of the British people, that was their introduction to. Hip hop music. <laughs> and that was Buffalo Gals. Let's hear some of it. Glaring up in the Bronx, watching hip hop, just going fascinating. Now, can we please leave? 
That's true. <laughs> Buffalo Gals, obviously, uh, the song he made was a, a modern take of the original Buffalo Gals. You know, an old song from the 1800s played at minstrel shows. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, you remember It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But Buffalo Gals, yeah, won't you come out tonight? tonight. Yeah. Yo, th- thank you, Barry. You got coming <laughs> over, coming over after all this time for playing the song that I heard, Night My Father Died. <laughs> and all my dreams, all my, all my dreams die with it. Thanks, Barry. And you're wondering why I'm not in a, in a good mood. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you should have jumped. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is Trevor Horn produced that record, actually. Trevor Horn being famous for, you know, being in the Buggles, video killed a radio star. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, the band, the prog rock band mm-hmm. and, and Art of Noise. And so he produced this song and he said that when the world's famous Supreme Team rappers showed up, uh, it was him and them, and they went to go record their part. The guys looked at the song and they said, "What kind of KKK shit is this?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, "Listen, this is a modern take. Okay, we're gonna do something new. We're gonna do it with beats and with rapping and record scratching everything. We're gonna own that song. Okay, yeah. all right, all right." Uh, and then like the guys like, "I don't know, Trevor. I don't, I don't know if I should do it." So Trevor's like, "Okay, I'm gonna get on the mic and I'll show you." So Trevor gets on the mic while the guys in the console, and he starts rapping the guy's lyrics <laughs> and then he looks up and he sees like there's like no one there yeah. and he's like i just walked the rappers the only people who are willing to do this and he goes back into the console and then he sees them on the floor laughing <laughs> their asses off and the guy's like okay man we'll do it okay 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 all right okay we'll do it we'll do it but just, Tre- trevor don't ever rap again <laughs> Oh, and that's how the British punks and the hip hop guys from the Bronx got together to record a song and, it, you know, it became a big hit. Yeah, gigantic hit. It was. Yeah, I mean, that's part of why we wanted to do this because, yeah. man, the beginning of hip hop, it's so strange. Yes. The, like, the types of people that came together and all of the things that had to happen for hip hop to become, you know, arguably the most popular music genre in the world. Yeah, like, it is. For, and for the has, last 20 years, at least. Yes, for, for at least the last 20 years. Hip-hop has absolutely ruled the fucking world, and it was such a strange journey to get there. <laughs> <laughs> now, the time in which Buffalo Gals was released was right around the same period in which the Beastie Boys were moving away from hardcore into hip-hop. Although, at this time, they were still mostly playing hardcore shows, but they were also opening for some of the biggest punk bands of the day. Like, they were opening for the Dead Kennedys, they were still opening for Bad Brains on the regular, and they were opening, of course, for the Misfits. Yes. And we talked about them opening for the Misfits uh, in our Misfits series. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) That was a disaster show. (laughs) But since the Beastie Boys were already into hip-hop, the weirdness of Buffalo Gals struck a chord, and the Beastie Boys became obsessed with it. But since they were super cool, artsy New York kids who couldn't admit to just liking something... (laughs) They decided to make fun of it instead the next time they went into the studio. Well, of course. I mean, because the Beasties, they loved rap and reggae music. They they did. But I mean, so they weren't going to make fun of the genre necessarily. They just wanted to do it in a funny way, you know. But uh, but it's open season for Malcolm McLaren, apparently. So, you know, <laughs> we're going to have fun with this. So, yes. Yeah, so the Beastie Boys, they spent almost almost two years writing and performing songs on a regular basis. So their plan to go into the studio was to 
do the songs that they've been working on this whole time. And they had that opportunity to go into the studio to record because Adam Yauch's parents were friends with an engineer at Celebration Recording Studio. This guy named Doug Pomeroy, mm-hmm. who did the engineering. So Doug let them come in to record a few nights after hours in March of 1983. So the Beasties, they go in, they record all their songs, and they're done in 20 minutes. Remember, they played punk music at that time. So their songs were two minutes at most, like you were saying. Like, it's, it's been less than an hour and they're done. They still have, like, loads more to go. And, it's not, <laughs> and the funny thing is they play it back and they're like, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> what we've been doing for years is not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you watch, uh, there's this public access show that they did around this time. Scott and Gary? The Scott and Gary show. Yeah. Where they play a few songs and it's one of the most adorable fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they're all 18 at most. Ad Rock is, I think, 16, 17. You know, his voice is barely changed the <laughs> songs are fucking terrible like I, the songs are yeah. really really bad i mean they're kind of cute though you yeah, know they're I, cute. I can see yeah. what they're doing you know they're, yeah. some of them are pretty catchy i i know the guys with the beastie boys there in the studio they're just like i don't understand why this song doesn't work why isn't bucket of cheese <laughs> our our biggest song so so of course they had all this extra time left over so they figured let's at least have fun with it and take full advantage of this fancy studio we get to use yeah Now, besides Buffalo Gals, the other obsession the Beastie Boys had at the time was a series of cheap homemade TV commercials, local commercials, advertising Carvel ice cream, which back then was just a regional ice cream parlor that sold novelty ice cream cakes in funny shapes. Carvel's adorable. Yeah. Actually, Henry Zabrowski's older sister fucking worked at Carvel in high school. Like, this is a (laughs) New York thing. Cool. And well, a Northeast thing. Well, Carvel had already introduced Hug Me Bear and the Fudgy the Whale ice cream cakes, which, of course, Fudgy the Whale is a it's a big chocolate whale. But in 1972, they introduced a third character. This character was an ice cream alien from the planet birthday <laughs> named Cookie Puss. <laughs> Hello, I'm a Carvel celestial person from outer space. My real name is Cookie Puss. But my friends call me CP. I'm a Carvel ice cream cake, and I made fresh daily at participating Carvel ice cream stores. Yeah. Cookie Puss will be at your participating Carvel ice cream stores. Please visit them. Or if you call this toll-free number, you can send Cookie Puss to a friend. Okay. Okay. Well, well, I mean, it's it was a bit of an invasion, I guess you could say. <laughs> it was a visitation. It was a visitation. Yeah, yeah. See, the the celestial person comes down and apparently wants us to eat him. Oh, okay. Over and over <laughs> and over again. Regenerate and eat. Regenerate and be eaten. Uh, ah. And if you look at like Cookie Puss, actually looks funny. Google what Cookie Puss looks like, because Cookie Puss is kind of in the shape of dick and balls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a vaguely genitalia-shaped uh, uh, figure that has a big ice cream cone for a nose, gigantic weird eyes. It's vaguely unsettling. It's supposed to be cute. It's not cute at all. It's kind of like if you dropped a normal cake on the floor, and then you put it back together, <laughs> and then you just kind of went along with it. Yeah. But I heard it's really delicious. I, he- I hear it's very delicious. We still haven't made it out to a car. We haven't made the drive out to Queens to get a cookie puss just yet. But I we got to get my second vac shot. 
<laughs> first thing we're doing. First, first thing. First thing. Uh, and those commercials, those commercials, like the the high pitched voice and the guy that sounds like vaguely intoxicated, that was Tom Carvel. And that added like the guy who owned Carvel ice cream store. So there was a lot of layers of to laugh at here because <laughs> a Carvel ice cream store is everyone's loves cookie puss. Come on and get a cookie of puss. And there was even cookie opus, which that was the Irish celestial person for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, come down to cookie or push and the caramel ice cream and have a nice ice cream cake for, for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, it was a very, I wouldn't say offensive, but I would say stereotypical. Ah. <laughs> but the Beastie Boys were obsessed with these commercials. They thought they were the funniest fucking thing in the world. And so the Beasties took their obsession with the ice cream alien from the planet birthday and combined it with the vibe of Buffalo Gals. Ooh. And the result was their infinitely more entertaining and appropriately titled single, Cookie Puss. like it now. I fucking love this yes. song. <laughs> I flipped completely. <laughs> well, the Beastie Boys, they decided to be fun to prank call someone, you know, prank call, call a Carvel ice cream store, like you said, and record the whole thing. That person has no idea that they're on a record <laughs> as far as I know. Yeah, that song's three and a half minutes long. They call a couple of Carvels. Yes. <laughs> they have to do a few takes. And they say they have no idea whose idea it was to call this, but they're like, we're just going to do this. And they nominated, of course, Adam Horowitz, probably because he was actually at that time working at an ice cream store. <laughs> like, oh, so they wanted I, got the- this. <laughs> I know this. I know how to talk to them. And so. <laughs> yeah, you got to get an inside man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and then to add music to that, you know, they recorded Kate, you know, playing their drums. She, she made it like a danceable beat. It's like, OK, that's good. That's good. Adam Yauk. All right. Play a distorted bass line. He just messed around, found something pretty cool. All right. That's cool. And then they added the record scratching that you can hear from a comedy LP, uh, Steve Martin's comedy. LP actually my real name you know from a, <laughs> I'm a wild and crazy guy 
Why? Everyone was that on that album? I think it was. Huh? Before there were two wild and crazy guys, <laughs> and just like that, you know, you get a fun but childish novelty record, <laughs> which is what it was. It's very childish. It's goddamn juvenile. Yes, doesn't tell you the truth. But you know, I'm also always gonna laugh at these pussy crumbs are making me itch. <laughs> but that's actually that was a goof on a line from Buffalo Gals. Like, there's a line in Buffalo Gals. There's a woman saying these record scratches are making me itch, oh. which is in itself goofy as fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what makes Cookie Puss important in the story of the Beastie Boys is that it was a stark departure from hardcore into the world of hip hop. And it was even more significant for the fact that the departure was indirectly ushered in by a punk figure, Malcolm McLaren. Now, even though there wasn't a single line of rapping throughout, the band was working out the feeling, the instrumentation, and the sampling. Because as astute listeners heard, the Beastie Boys actually sampled themselves mm -hmm. in Cookie Puss by using the BSTA from their self-titled hardcore song. But that sampling vibe was, as you said, also combined with instrumentation. You had Kate Schellenbach playing the drums. You had Adam Yauch just starting his career as a top-tier bass mm -hmm. player. In other words, it's still kind of punk, but it's by no means hardcore. What's interesting, though, is that this song, Cookie Puss, I think, shares much more in common with the Beastie Boys album Check Your Head from 1992, as opposed to what the Beastie Boys did just a couple of years after Cookie Puss with License to Ill, because Check Your Head featured the Beastie Boys playing their own instruments throughout. <laughs> That, that song is fucking amazing. But yeah, there is a decade between that song and Cookie Puss. Oh, yeah. I hope they got better. <laughs> Which they did. <laughs> Which they obviously did. Yeah. But yeah, that from Cookie Puss to, to Check Your Head, that is a full... 10 years of work and you know there's paul's boutique in there there's oh. you know like, there's, oh yeah one of the you know, best the, albums of my lifetime yeah yeah exactly like there's license to ill but you can still see that there's still a tether back to that first goofy like these pussy crumbs are making me itch like between <laughs> that and jimmy james never like, lose that <laughs> but as admittedly dumb as cookie puss was the beasties recognized that it was worth something so they released what amounted to a joke song as a 12-inch single instead of all the hardcore songs that they'd recorded. Their friend, Dave Skilkin, 
did the graphics. Of course, Dave Skulkin, astute listeners will know, was name checked and looking down the barrel of a gun while Say Adams did the logo. Yeah, Say Adams. He's from Queens, baby. Yeah. By the way. Yes, Say, he was and actually is still good friends with the BC Boys. Another lifelong friendship right there. And Say, he started out in New York doing graffiti art and painting trains like Lee Quinones, like Lady Pink, Basquiat, Keith Haring. You know, he knew all those people. He was friends with them. He was kind of part of that crowd. Bad Vibe Freddy. Yep, exactly. And around this time, Say met Adam Horowitz and Dave Skilkin at Danceteria. Of course, Danceteria of all places. Yeah. That's where they were always at. <laughs> and so the Beasties, they knew that Say was working with Rush Productions, which we will talk about later, mm-hmm. doing flyers and banners. So they asked him like, if he could design like a logo for the band. You know, the famous graffiti logo that says Beastie Boys. Yeah. Very famous. And he actually made the logo. He handed it to Dave, who was also another graffiti writer, too. You know, he worked on it for the EP cover for Cookie Puss and everything. Uh, And and that's how it came out. But they also spray painted their logo in really big letters on a wall across the street from Danceteria. So everyone can see (laughs) that everyone knows the Beastie Boys. And the funny thing is it was completely illegal. Like they didn't have any permits. They had to do it in the middle of the night. The Beastie Boys were the lookouts. (laughs) They were doing this. And the funny thing is, is like you're doing this right outside of a club that you go to every weekend. Yeah. And you're walking by wearing uh, hand painted hats and shirts that say Beastie Boys on it. (laughs) That say did for them. So it's like stands to reason Uh that whoever defaced that wall (laughs) might have been those guys. (laughs) Who was it that said that like they used to see the Beastie Boys around the East Village, like all dressed up in like their Beastie Boys clothes? Moore. Thurston Moore, yes. Sonic Youth. He's like, they were like a little pack, but they were adorable and completely harmless, which is what everyone thought about them at the time when they were 16, 17. Yep. But yes, we'll, we'll be hearing more about Say later because he, he's he he's got a bright future ahead of him. He really You'll does. See. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this man is responsible for some of the most famous covers in hip-hop history. Yes. This guy's in the fucking Smithsonian now. Absolutely. Now, once Cookie Puss was released on the hardcore Rat Cage Records label, it became to Everyone's surprise, an immediate hit in the local club scene with all the hip-hop DJs downtown. Now, it had gotten quite a bit of college radio play, as was expected, because the Beastie Boys had been played on Noise the Show quite a bit. But the moment in which the Beastie Boys knew they'd been fully accepted was when they started hearing from friends that Africa Bombada was spinning the track during live DJ sets. Or so the legend goes. Yeah, they said allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> the band was playing at the Roxy. and But they also knew, like, you know, their friends, like DJ Anita Sarko, she's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll play it at Danceteria or, or Johnny Dinell at, playing at Area Club. So it, they were starting to get a little bit of local celebrity status. At least with their 15 friends and the people around the club scene. I yeah. mean, but it still is really cool. Like, you feel cool. Like, they were yeah. able to actually like, maybe approach a girl yeah. at one point. No, isn't that what Mike D said? That I, it, it, I was able to talk to girls. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, and then what happened? He's like, nothing. That's as far as <laughs> I couldn't. But I mean, like, the first step, though. Yeah. That was the first step. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Now, even though Cookie Puss was getting a lot of play in all the right places, remember that the Beastie Boys were still teenagers. And at this time, most of the members were graduating from high school and going off to college. Mike Diamond went to Vassar, and Adam Yauch went to Bard. But Adam Horowitz, the youngest Beastie, was still in high school and having problems of his own. He'd been rejected from Stytown High, and that's despite the fact that he later constantly wore a Stytown High t-shirt that was probably Kate Schellenbach's. Probably. <laughs> and he left Brooklyn Tech because Brooklyn Tech was too overwhelming. Then he tried attending a private school uptown called McBurney, but that didn't work out for purely performative reasons. You know, and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> because Adam Horvitz's high school, you know, they were doing a production of Oliver and they were having auditions. And Adam's actually like the thespian of the group. Yes. You know, he's always been interested in acting and, and maybe later we'll get to that. Uh, but for now, he's 17. He's going to this audition and I guess he's finding out that right there that Oliver is a musical <laughs> and that there's singing involved and he's never really sang out loud before because, you know, he did some yelling and stuff, you know, with Young and the Useless and Beastie Boys. But this time, this time it's real singing. Yes. And he had to sing Consider Yourself at Home. <laughs> well, real singing. Let's listen to Consider Yourself at Home. <laughs> He's going, consider yourself at home. Next. <laughs> Adam, uh, he did such a terrible job at his audition that he decided never to come back to that school. <laughs> he expelled himself from his high school. And you know what? I'm going to say that's fine because yeah, he took a chance. He, he did. He took a chance and nothing wrong with taking a chance. Nothing at all. So, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, Adrock had to finish high school somehow. So he ended up getting his degree at City S School, which is like kind of an alternative kind of high school where you do internships and volunteer for stuff. You know, you get your hands on training in the real world, you know, City as School, mm -hmm. which, which is actually perfect for him. And then Kate Schellenbach, you know, she's the smart one of the group. So she's in Hunter College. She's studying. She's getting straight A's. People are cheating off her paper, I'm sure. <laughs> she's great. And like, like you said, Mike D going to Vassar, he went to Vassar for one semester. Mm -hmm. And then I think he either just uh, dropped out or they nicely asked him to not come back. <laughs> but either way, he told his parents, like, listen, this is a total waste of your money and my time because all I want to do is be in this band. Yeah. And of course, you know, the parents weren't happy about that. But, you know, you have to remember the guys had very progressive, very lenient parents. Yeah. But and, we can't control our children, man. They're, they're on their own trip. <laughs> and Adam Yauch, who was the oldest, like you said, 
say he was already going to Bard, a liberal arts college upstate, but he left after two years for pretty much the same reason as Mike D. Because like during his school breaks, he'd always be down in Manhattan anyways. And he actually would work at Shakedown Studios, Arthur Baker's recording studio. And he would work there kind of like as an assistant engineer, like just a tape op, like uh, the guy who gets the donuts, yeah, you know, learning the ropes. And that to him was a more satisfying learning experience. Yeah. And Adam Yauk, like he's the gearhead. Like yes. he, the the things that he cut, like the techniques that he comes up with, like even as early as License to Ill are revolutionary. Yeah. You know, he he knows how to do shit instinctively. And, you know, and I know like MCA so far has been the one we've talked about the least, but his role will become much, much bigger in the next couple of episodes. Oh, yeah. No, we'll get into tape loops. Yeah. We'll get into all that. Yeah. Reverse taping all that to 808s, which we'll get into in just a second. <laughs> Now, there were plenty of opportunities for the Beastie Boys to fade into obscurity during those early days. But somehow, some way, something always seemed to happen to keep the Beastie Boys train moving. In 1983, during a bit of a creative lull, Adam Horowitz was skipping class to hang out at his friend Tammy's apartment to watch TV one day. And that's when he saw this commercial for British Airways. away from home and in need of a little help it's worth remembering British Airways has people in more places than any other airline smoking or non-smoking non-smoking British Airways the world's favorite airline now, it's somewhat hard to hear. It's a fucking mess because it's, you know, I'm playing that off of YouTube, you know, a commercial that was taped 30 was years ago. Xerox from a Xerox yeah. from a Xerox. <laughs> yeah. But Adam Horowitz was watching this ad and he heard a bass line playing in the background. This doom, 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 doom. He started thinking like, that is very familiar. <laughs> and he quickly realized that the bass line had been taken directly from the B-side to Cookie Puss. Bastard. <laughs> and that B-side was the well-meaning reggae parody, Beastie Revolution. Very well-meaning. Very well-meaning. Again, not the most mature thing in the world. <laughs> but actually, that's why I like it. Yeah. I like I like that it's like not 
good. Yeah. <laughs> but it is good. Yeah. I'll explain that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, this, like Cookie Puss, this is the Beasties making fun of something that they loved. You know, the way the Beastie Boys always tell the story of like these early days uh, is they're like, yeah, man, like pizza's cool and everything, but like I was eating pizza back in the day. Like in New York, <laughs> you're not allowed to just say like, yeah, dude, I fucking love pizza. Like you have to kind of sideways like it, you know, and that's kind of what Beastie Revolution was because, you know, it's very difficult to make jokes, even bad ones, about a subject unless you have an intimate knowledge, unless you have some of, like kind of a love for the subject. Right. Now, it wasn't long before the Beastie Boys, or more accurately, their parents, filed a lawsuit against British Airways. And after definitively proving that the ad man for British Airways had sampled Beastie Revolution, the airline settled and the Beasties suddenly came into a lot of money. These teenagers had $40,000. $40,000. 40 grand. I mean, that's not a lot, a lot of money, but I it mean. It is in like 1983. In 1983. Yeah. You'd think with like a settlement with British Airways, it's like $1.2 million. But no, you. No, you I mean, toss, like, listen to the song. It's worth $40,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, these guys suddenly had 40 grand in their pockets. So they went shopping. They paid for stuff. I mean, all the stuff that you do, like when you're suddenly come into a lot of money and you're a teenager, like, this is on me, guys. It's my trees. Like, great. We got ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and Adrock, actually, funny enough, quit his job at the ice cream store. Yeah. yeah he handed his apron. <laughs> it was done. And then Adam Yauk and Mike D, they moved out of their parents' house and they rented their own apartment in Chinatown on 59 Christie Street. Mm -hmm. And it was a disgusting, rat-infested <laughs> dump of a place, but they called it hope. It was so bad you could actually hear the scratching in the walls, uh, which is <laughs> from the rats. From the rats, but I mean, which is kind of a normal thing in New York City. Yeah. But the worst part, though, is that in the hallways they had packs of rats <laughs> roaming around the hallways in the middle, like they owned the building. <laughs> there were teams of them, or something like that. So. That I remember. Yeah, that's not an old school. That still happens. That still happens. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Beastie Boys mentioned to the super of the building, like, you know, we have lots of rats. Like, you know, we can't live like this. And the super, you, you know what he said? He said, yeah, we, we get that problem all the time. It's, it's New York City. A uh, little tip here for you. If you kill a rat and leave its body for the others to find, the rats will leave you alone for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Until the next generation of rats is yeah. born. And the Beastie Boys like, oh, Thank you. Okay, uh, we'll keep that in mind. Yeah, hot tip. Yes, their apartment. It was it was like a big loft. It was so bad. Their ceiling was the floorboards of a sweatshop above them. So there's a small factory sweatshop working all hours, making all kinds of noises, leaking all kinds of rusty water on their faces while they're trying to read or something. <laughs> uh, which is actually part of the reason why they took the place, though, because they could be as loud as they wanted to with their music. Yeah, and that's what they liked about it. That was the selling point. Definitely not the asphalt floor that they had <laughs> like like you know like a street like when they pave a street yeah. that was the floor <laughs> so they had no real floors it was a black top you can walk around with no shoes your feet are black and so this big loft space there's no bedrooms there's no living room it's just one big room with a small kitchenette against the wall and a bathtub in the middle of the room all right a lot of pre-war places are like that they put a bathtub in the middle of the room because it hooks up to the kitchen that plumbing wise or whatever so you have to take a bath if you want to clean up there <laughs> in front of the kitchen in the middle of the room in plain sight of course there's no curtain or anything which means the guys have to get used to each other's uh quirks you could say <laughs> like 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 adam horovitz he he has a distinct memory of when mike d would take a bath in the tub in the middle of, and right in the middle of that bath mike would just get up 
stark naked from the tub and put one foot on the ground and just reach over to the refrigerator, open the door, looking for a snack. Because he's hungry. <laughs> like, he's standing there completely naked. Soapy dick and balls, full taint on display. While he's like scratching his head. He's like, mm, guys, Adam, Adam, yeah, duh, duh, look over here, look over here. Yes, you, Adam, look over here. Are we out of intimates? <laughs> and the guys are like, I don't know. I'll, go, I'll leave. I'm going to leave. <laughs> but the guys, they eventually got some friends to put up some walls. Yeah. And, and curtains, for, you know, as doors to make it a two bedroom. So a little bit of privacy, but not the bathtub for some reason. Because <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. <laughs> and they used the rest of the space uh, to rehearse in. And, and that's what they stayed there. Actually, they stayed there for about a year until they came back from tour much later and they showed up and they're like, wow, we were living like this. We just we can't do this anymore. Now, the Beasties could have very easily wasted the rest of the cash they'd been awarded because they were, after all, college kids. But since college didn't really work out for anyone and since Cookie Puss had done just well enough, they decided to invest in music full time. And the Beastie Boys, as we now know them, were born. Without that British Airways money, yeah. I don't know if the Beastie Boys would have made it. Like, I don't know if they, because that time that they had in that space to just play and play and play and play and play, that's what made the Beastie Boys the Beastie Boys. Now, as far as what the band invested in physically, Adam Horowitz went to a used instrument store called Rogue Music to buy a new Rickenbacker guitar because he wanted the same type of Rickenbacker that Paul Weller from The Jam had played in such classic punk tracks as In the City. But thankfully, something else caught Adam's eye that day, something that was just starting to change the entire sound of both hip-hop and popular music. Used throughout the 80s and beyond by everyone from Run DMC to New Order, that instrument was the Roland oh. TR-808 drum machine. Yeah! Hell yeah. Mm. That's your Roland TR-808 there. That's a head bopper. The, <laughs> or at least this is a beat from the TR-08, which is the TR-808 reissue because there were only 13,000 TR-808s made ever. I think they go for about... Uh, few thousand dollars these days. Whoa. Yeah, they're oh, very expensive. We have the discount version. Yes, right? we have the discount okay. version. Yes. This is this is the this is our house 808. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the 808 sound. Now for most of us, an 808 doesn't sound strange at all because we've never lived in a world where the 808 wasn't ubiquitous. And you know, me and Carolina both being people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was such a central part of both the hip hop and the uh, pop music toolbox. And the jazzercise cult. <laughs> Very popular in the jazzercise cult. And But you know, while the 808 is cool as fuck and something to be respected, it also sounds a little bit dated. But in the early 80s, the 808 sounded fucking weird. It was like someone was trying to create percussive sounds based only on descriptions they read in a book. Like, for example, let's go through a couple of them. It had a crack that was kind of like a snare. That's it. There's your crack. It had a bing that was supposed to be a cowbell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And hand claps that sounded sort of like hand claps, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, but not really. I totally, yeah, I totally yeah, see that. Sort of, but not really. There are no hands on the face of the earth that can make this sound. <laughs> but you hear that and you instinctively think like, oh, 
That's a hand clap. But the most important element of the 808 was the bass. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows an 808 bass. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that just reminds me of all the cars that go by our apartment. <laughs> you still hear 808 bass to this day. And the 808 bass, that didn't exist before the 808. Not really. Not in the way that that fucking bass overtook the entire world. And although it does sound dated now, the 808 in the early 80s sounded futuristic, otherworldly, and new. And it was used most effectively in the early days by the most futuristic and otherworldly DJ, Africa Bombada. See, Africa Bombada was a huge fan of Kraftwerk, the German electronic pioneers. And he wanted to make an electronic track that would appeal to both the punk kids and the hip-hop kids. So, using an 808 beat programmed by a freelancer named Joe, who was paid in cash and remains a mysterious figure to this day. Bombata. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you, Joe. He, has, he didn't even seek any royalty. He has no idea what he was a part of. I'm just Joe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that. Now, using that beat by Joe and combining that with Kraftwerk, Bombada put together the electro-funk groundbreaker, Planet Rock. Adam Horvitz had heard Bombada use the 808 by the time he went to Rogue Music to get a new guitar. So when Adam saw an 808 for sale, he figured, fuck it, I already got a guitar. So he took his chances with a drum machine. Later, Adam Horvitz would use that 808 to come up with a beat that's pretty close to this one right here, which is the best I can do with my own 808 it's reissue. Good. You did great. <laughs> And of course, this beat was used to great effect just a couple of years after Ad-Rock got his 808 on this track right here. Brass monkey, that monkey monkey. Brass monkey, chunky, that monkey monkey. 
And so, with the 808 in their possession, money in their pocket, and a local hit under their belt, the Beastie Boys just had to get one more thing in order. They had to learn how to rap. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're on it. We're on it, too. Yeah, yeah. Now, when it came to the Beastie Boys truly learning how to MC like the Funky 4 Plus One More or the Treacherous 3, they most likely wouldn't have pulled it off without the passion of one over-enthusiastic wrestling fan from Long Island. And that guy's name was Rick Rubin. Yes, Rick Rubin from Long Beach, Long Island. Yes, it, Frederick Rubin, I believe, was his <laughs> Don't call him Fred. Oh, call him Rick. <laughs> Everyone calls him Rick. And Rick, from an early age, he was a big fan of rock music. Obviously, ACDC, Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, as well as the uh, more underground punk and hardcore stuff at the time, like Black Flag and Minor Threat, uh, which no one in his town of Long Beach, Long Island, was a fan of. Yeah. He was completely alone in this. So naturally, he gravitated towards the arts and music scene of downtown Manhattan and, you know, checked out shows and hung out record stores like Rat Cage and also formed his own band. Actually, two bands. Uh, the first one was called The Pricks, who I've been told were god awful. Yep. And then later, when he started going to school at NYU, he was a guitarist for an experimental group called Hose, which I've been told were a fun band to watch, but also god awful. I, I, I listened to a Hose track. Did you? Uh, yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. They put, yeah, because that was the very first, the first record he ever put out was yes. Hose in yes. a fucking brown paper sack. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like Flipper. Uh, like it's, it is. It is inspired <laughs> by the craziness of Flipper. Yeah. But the, the funny thing about Rick Rubin is like when he was going to Manhattan, it's like not like he was getting on the train. Like Rick Rubin came from money. Yes. Like he came from a lot of money. His parents would drive him downtown to CBGB's, let him out, and then wait in the car <laughs> <laughs> until he was done. And then they would be like, so, Frederick, do you have a good time? <laughs> Don't call me. For, everyone calls me Rick. Everyone calls me Rick. Yeah, yes. no, Rick Rubin came from money, money, money. That money, Rick Rubin was like Batman. Money was his superpower. Yeah. Except, you know, Batman still had that passion in order to get it done. Right. And Rick Rubin was the same way. Like, it wasn't just that he was a rich kid. It's just the fact that he was a rich kid gave him the resources to accomplish what he did accomplish. That's true. He had a very strong personality where he came up with these crazy ideas. He was a big ideas guy. Yeah. You know, he wasn't afraid to try anything, even if it meant like total failure. Like he wasn't shy and he was he was never like too proud or too cool. If he wanted to do something, he'd find someone who knew how to do it and then ask them yeah. and then just do it himself. Like, you know, how do you do this? How do you record an EP? I want to record my band Hose like that. And that's actually how he met Ed Ballman, who ran the 99 record store downtown. He just asked him and Ed helped him out and told him like what studios the cheapest to record in, where to get the vinyl press, like who to call for this and that. Uh, it's actually how Rick started his recording career, just asking and then doing it and then learning it by doing it. Yeah. And this is while Rick Rubin is going to NYU as a film student. He's living in the dorms, you know, rarely going to class, going out and partying. Or, or organizing parties at his dorm and DJing these wild parties. Like he was the chairman of the social committee. Yeah. And he almost got kicked out of school for having crazy parties. <laughs> but he's like, I'm doing my job, you know, I'm doing it well. It's like that movie Real Genius, but less science and more arts and music. <laughs> It's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, NYU is the perfect place for this. Like, NYU is on, like, East 8th. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Broadway. So, like, he can easily go to CBGB's, but he can also easily go uptown. Because, like, Rick Rubin, he's not like all the rest of the white kids in the hip-hop. Like, Rick Rubin is not afraid to go 
anywhere That's and true. not afraid to talk to anybody. Yeah. Like he would check out Bad Brains, the cramps, and then he'd go to the Negril on and hip hop nights and check out Cool Lady Blues shows that she would host. And then, you know, that would be like the first time he would see hip hop played live. Cause he, you know, he heard all the, the, the other, like the tapes and the vinyls, just like the Beastie Boys. He knew that there was something exciting about it when he saw it live. Yeah. And when Rick Rubin saw hip hop live, like it was the same thing with the Beastie Boys when he said, like he had, of course, like, you know, heard tapes, but when he saw it live, that's when something clicked in his head. And that's when he said, I want to do this. Yes. Like, I want to be a part of this shit. Like, so tell me how to be a part of it. Yes. <laughs> Even went up to the Bronx and be like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm the only white guy around. It's all good. Yeah. I'm here for the music. Yeah. Now, one thing that's important to understand about the Beastie Boys is that they didn't just up and decide to start rapping one day. As we said last episode, they've been fans of the genre for years, and they'd even done a couple of hip-hop side projects with their friends just for fun. Yeah, that's an important thing to know. That's why the Beastie Boys are so loved so dearly is because they're not exploitative. They truly love this stuff. Yeah. So like when they were messing around in high school and maybe a little bit and going to college, they've had these little projects like Triple Sly Crew that Adam Yauch and Kate Schellenbach and their friend Sarah Cox would like, you know, just rap silly rhymes for fun over a song like Apache and record them with like Kate's Radio Shack tape recorder. <laughs> and they even made buttons for their little group, although it was just it was just a fun thing to do. Nothing serious. And another little fun side project was Mike D's project called Beat Brothers that he did with Tom Cushman and Thomas Beller. And they recorded a song called Reading Rap. No, oh. it's, 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 you know, like hit the books, but don't hit the street and avoid the ends that you might meet. <laughs> it, you know, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah. It's, you got to read, read, read or die. Read or die. Yes. But when the Beastie Boys did decide to rap live, they knew they'd need a DJ. That's what everyone had. You have a DJ, you have an MC. And that's how Rick Rubin, a.k.a. DJ Double R, became for a time the fourth Beastie Boy. And it changed the entire dynamic of the band. Now, as far as how the Beastie Boys met Rick Rubin, it was either through Dave Skilkin or Nick Cooper, depending on if you ask Rick Rubin or Adam Horvitz. There's a few different versions. Many different versions. But regardless of who introduced them, it was definitely Ad-Rock who met Rick Rubin first through Friends in the Punk scene. Pretty soon, Adam and Rick were hanging out in Rick's dorm room at NYU on the regular. And I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that culturally speaking... Rick Rubin's dorm room might be the most consequential dorm room in American history. Yeah. Room 712. Yeah. <laughs> it is because, you know, according to the Beastie Boys, Rick had the DJ equipment and most importantly, access to a bubble machine. <laughs> That's a big selling point if you want to hang with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> and, and of course, Rick got along great with them because, you know, they had a lot in common, you know, with music, of course. And they're also into Monty Python movies, Steve Martin. They had that fun sense of humor that, that they shared together. And uh, like you said, the dorm was a cool place to be because he's a little bit older. Yeah. And when you're a little bit older and you have a little bit more freedom, it's just so cool. And plus with all these toys and all, all these crates of records and equipment spread out on two desks put together uh, with mixers and speakers and stuff. I mean, I don't even think he had a bed. Yeah. I, I don't need, I don't know where he slept. There was just no room for one, you know? So the beasties and Rick Rubin, they would put on music. They listen to Schoolie D and sometimes they, they'd make mixtapes and sit out front of the dorm building with a boom box and talk about whatever. I mean, they're kids. They don't need a reason to hang. They just sit there and be there, you know? And maybe later they'll go out to dance interior or the Roxy was their playground. Like 
anything they wanted to do. It was great. They would rap while Rick Rubin would be DJing at the parties and, and they'd just be wild. They'd be tagging up NYU dorms and everything. <laughs> and they pretty much treated it like their home. Yeah. Now, from what Rick Rubin heard by going out and seeing live hip hop at places like the Negril, the singles being released on labels like Sugar Hill Records and Enjoy sounded nothing like what was being played live. They were fucking great, but it wasn't live hip hop. Whereas most rap singles out there were basically R&B tracks with rappers doing what they did over the instrumental, live rap was much simpler when it came to instrumentation. It was a lot more raw, and to Rick's CBGB-infected ears, it was a lot more punk. There was, however, one group who just put out a single that had gotten as close as anyone when it came to capturing what it was like to be in the room at a New York City hip-hop show, or just on the fucking corner in New York City. That band was Run DMC. And they were using what else but an 808. A friend of mine asked me to say some MC rhyme So I said this rhyme I'm about to say The rhyme was there for then it went this way Took a test to become an MC And Orange Cliff became amazed at me So Larry put me inside He stepped to lack The stripper drove off and we never came back Dave cut the record down to the bone And now they got me rocking on the microphone And then we're talking autographs And tears and laughs and champagne caviar And bubble bath You see uh, uh, that's the life uh, that I lead And you suck at MC Take that and move back, catch a heart attack Because there's nothing in the world That run no level like a cold chill at A party in the b-boy stands And rock on the mic and make the girls wanna dance Fly like a dove and come from up above I'm rocking on the mic and you call me run love and that, I mean, that's why, like, hip-hop Because I'd always wondered that And I didn't know that until we started looking at the series Like, why did hip-hop make that change from, you know, stuff like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five into Run DMC? What was it that made it change? And a guy named Rick. <laughs> partly, 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 partly a guy named Rick. But, you know, a lot of it was the 808. And it was tr- what it was is it was trying to capture what people were doing on the streets and they got so much fucking resistance. They were like, well, so uh, where's the guitars? It's done. Put it out. (laughs) But even though the first Run DMC single was earth shattering on a cultural level for being able to capture what it was like to hear MCs rapping over breakbeats in a New York City park, Rick Rubin still thought that he could do better. So he set out to try and recruit an MC so he could produce his own hip hop single. Yeah, remember, he's got big ideas. Huge ideas. And and as I said, he's not afraid to go up to anyone and say hi, which is exactly what he did after a show at Negril, where he saw the Treacherous Three, his favorite hip-hop group that he was really, really into. So here comes Rick Rubin, a stocky guy with long hair, looks like a metal head, uh, <laughs> a, a white guy. I forgot. I don't know if we mentioned he's a white guy Yo, from Long Island. Yeah, I didn't think we needed to. No, okay. <laughs> Pretty obvious. He's like, I was really into magic until I got into, uh, you know, hip hop music. So, so Rick goes up to one of the treacherous three, Cool Modi, and says, hi, I'm Rick. I'm a big fan of your stuff. Here's my number. Can we meet up and talk about music and everything? You know, and then Cool Modi was like, yeah, why not? So Cool Modi went to Rick's NYU dorm to talk about hip hop music. Pretty much it's just just to have a conversation. And Rick says to him, 
I've been following your music for a little while and I really love it. You know, the stuff you made on Enjoy Records is great, but your newest record that you're doing uh, that that I just heard, it's not that great. Yeah. It's actually not that good as the rest of the stuff, you know, the stuff you did before. And don't get me wrong, Cool Modi. Like I'm a big <laughs> fan of your music and, and, and of you. And, and I, I just, just don't want to see it go that way. Let's figure out a way to make it better. This is a college kid yeah. talking to Cool Modi. <laughs> <laughs> but also remember, they're also the same age. They're around the same age. Yeah. yeah. And also uh, Rick had, he already had a little bit of experience. Like he he put out a record with his band Hose. So he, what he had, he said, like, I already have a little bit of experience recording. You know, I have a like a, this small time business thing. I, I have this little thing called Def Jam or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I can help if you like. And so Cool Modi said, all right, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and all but the treasures three you know we're all signed to sugar hill records so we can't work together you know it's an exclusive deal we have going on but you should talk to special k you know he's one of the treasures three he's in the group and he might have an idea so rick brings in special k to his dorm room mm -hmm. and he says and he shows him like the the 808 drum machine and some of the beats he's programmed on there himself and special k says okay that's cool I wrote this song called It's Yours, but I can't do it because I'm signed to Sugar Hill, remember? Uh, but, um, you know, they don't want it for some reason. So I can't do the song, but my brother can. My brother Tila Rock is available. He can do it. I'll give it to him since he's family. It's all good. And you guys can record it. So Rick finally found someone to record a hip hop album with. Great. Perfect. He's got an MC. And since he wanted to keep that live hip hop feel that you've been talking about, you know, playing in the streets or in the clubs, every MC needs a DJ. So he invites DJ Jazzy J to come record, too. Now it's a party. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, it is kind of a party because they do invite their friends to the recording. Like yeah. they invited Adam Horowitz and Dave Skelton, of course, to come with them to the studio to Long Island City, hang out, you know, and do the party hollering noises and stuff. You know, all, all the, the the party part of the track and have some drinks, of course, and, uh, you know, get this song on the record. Yeah. And Tila Rock is like he was approaching hip hop as a hobby. Like he worked at a pharmacy. Yeah. He wasn't going to quit his job. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. No, no, not yet. So using the 808 to create the beat and with Adam Horowitz actually being in the studio to help out with the yes, <laughs> yeah, Rick Rubin released It's Yours by Tila Rock and Jazzy J, making it the first hip hop recording released by what would become one of the biggest hip hop labels in history, Def Jam. Description giving, adjective expert, analyzing some of the musical myth seeking people of the universe. This is yours. It's yours. Do you like it? Yeah. Do you want it? Yeah. Well, if you had it, would you flaunt it? Yeah. Well, it's yours. Taking a record that's already made with the help of the Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
So at the studio, DJ Jesse J was passing around a bottle of Brass Monkey, ah. which is a mixed cocktail with orange juice and vodka and rum, and or some versions it's beer and orange juice. It's weird. It's not high end stuff. <laughs> but when you're a teenager, anything will do yeah. as far as alcohol goes. And so Adam Horowitz and Dave Skelton, they're like, "This is great. This is great. This is the first time a Beastie Boy ever tried." Brass monkey. Brass monkey. Oh, it's that DJ Jazzy J. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, so oh, and if you don't know what happened to Teela Rock, it's a crazy story. Can I tell it really it's fast? The, the Teela Rock story is insane. I know. I, I hope they <laughs> have some movie or documentary coming out yeah. or anything because uh, Teela Rock, uh, of course, the song became a huge hit. But he started to fade a little bit in the spotlight after a while. And later on in 1994, he happened to be outside his grandmother's house in the Bronx where he saw a girl being like harassed or assaulted or something by these guys. So he ran over to help her in her defense. And the guys beat up Teela Rock so badly that he ended up in the hospital with massive brain trauma. He was in a coma for a while, I think. And they moved him from hospital to hospital. And he eventually woke up in like some sort of like geriatric, like hospital type place for long term care. And he woke up like with like total amnesia. Like he had no idea who he was or, or where he came from. So he, he kind of like stayed there for a little while. And then when they finally found him, they had to tell him like, like you're Teela Rock, you know, and Teela Rock's like, that's cool, but I'm playing bridge with Esther and Harold tonight. <laughs> <laughs> See, he was loving his life <laughs> in this old folks home with these elderly Holocaust survivors. <laughs> but, you know, luckily, like he did eventually was able to regain everything. He, he was able to make music again since then. So, yeah. you know, he seems to be doing pretty good so far. Yeah. Which he, is great. He's one of the best uh, documentary guys because, you know, we've watched so many documentaries with these and Teela Rock's one of the best. Yes. Yeah. He's great. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. But concerning Adam Horvitz, yelling back, yeah, wasn't the only thing he was contributing to Def Jam. See, once Ruben released It's Yours with his actual dorm address as Def Jam's location, he started receiving demo tapes from around the five boroughs, and Adam Horvitz listened to quite a few of them. One of those demos was a song called I Need a Beat, which featured a 16-year-old from Queens rapping a cappella. After Adam heard the tape, he obliged and created a beat for the song which eventually became the first single from LL Cool J.
I love LL Cool J hip hop. I, yeah. I, I, I like a sixteen year old boy. Sixteen years old no. hip hop. LL Cool J is much better than R and B LL Cool J. I agree with you. No, no one likes doing it. No, but I, <laughs> I like movie star LL Cool J. Movie star LL Cool J is also great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what's funny is that I only recently discovered that I've had an LL Cool J tattoo. For about 20 years. What do you mean? (laughs) I had no idea. The the boombox that I have tattooed on my left arm. It says, I need a beat. No, No, it doesn't say, I need a beat. Uh, I saw it. It was a mural that this comic book artist that I loved in college and and still love now. His name's Jim Mahfood, but he does a lot of great murals. And I saw this mural that he did in like Arizona. And the moment that I saw it, I wanted to get it because it's like a boombox, an old school boombox on like a brick wall. And on top it says, I can't live without my radio. And I thought, you know, and I was, you know, always been, you know, radio has been my life for 20 fucking years. My 20th anniversary radio is coming up in fucking June. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, and of course I was really big into college radio. So I was like, oh man, that's who I am. Fucking stereos and radio. Hell yeah. And I didn't know until like last year that I can't live without my radio is an LL Cool J song. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are connected. I had no fucking idea. For so long. That, that makes it kind of cooler. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. That yeah, I have a fucking I inadvertently have an old school hip hop fucking tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but I still love that tattoo. It's still yeah. It, it's still of my original shitty tattoos. That's my favorite one. I love it. Thank you. You have to look at it every day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the more Adam Horowitz hung around Rick Rubin, the more Mike Diamond and Adam Yauk also started hanging around Room 712. And with Rubin, the Beasties actually studied rap records so they could learn how to rap themselves. And this was how each member developed their own distinct style. Yes, because remember, they already spent their teenage years memorizing the lyrics and then rapping on over the rap records that they had. Essentially doing covers. Yes, exactly. And many an afternoon and weekend spent in their bedrooms (laughs) doing that. And and they were pretty good, but right, they weren't nearly there. But now they have Rick Rubin who could help mold their styles a little bit better because he was able to identify their strengths and weaknesses. Well, the thing is about Rick Rubin is that he has the most important element when it comes to a producer. He has taste. Yes. This is the man, like Rick Rubin, if you didn't know, Rick Rubin is the man who pulled Johnny Cash back out of obscurity and is Rick Rubin responsible for American recordings one through four. Like he's not just a hip hop DJ. Like Rick Rubin is one of the most consequential producers in American music history. That's true. That's true. I mean, because of him, we have Sir Mix a lot. (laughs) And that's great. And that's great. That's great. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. All right, so let's cue the montage of them like actually doing their drill sergeant learning how to rap situation. (laughs) Adam Horowitz, he loved uh, Jimmy Spicer and he would try to emulate him with the the low baritone voice. Lowest slide. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And Rick was like, no, man, Adam, no, that's just not working. If you do it like that, it's weird. You're not a low voice, smooth talker. You're more like a whiny, upset, screaming type of guy. (laughs) He's like, I am? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, am I right? Yeah, he is. He is. Okay, very much so. All right. So you're the youngest. Adam, you're the youngest. You're the whiniest. The the baby spice. Yeah. All right. That's Horvitz. Yeah. And that's the most recognizable voice out of the Beastie Boys. Yes. And then Rick goes, all right, next, Mike D. And Mike's like, all right, I'm here. All right, Mike, you're not smooth either. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. You need to sound, Mike, you got to sound like you're working hard when you rap. 
what? Like <laughs> you have to show the effort, the sweat, the bulging vein from your neck. Like, oh yeah, like that. That's good. Okay. Okay. That, now get to work. You're always working hard. Okay. All right. And so Rick looks at the guys. He's like, all right, we got it. Perfect. Good. And then of course the other guys are like, well, what about Adam Yelk? Yeah. What about him? <laughs> that's my impression of Mike. And <laughs> what about him? What is he going to do anything? And Rick is like, well, Yelk is the James Dean of the group. He's, he's cool and he's natural at rapping. He, he can recreate a flawless Spoonie G-Rap. Leave him alone. <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing to say to that guy. Yeah. He's fucking great. And so, yeah, Yauk is like, yeah, I'm sorry. I came out this way. <laughs> Worked out perfectly. And so with these styles in place, the Beastie Boys aped another aspect of hip-hop culture and gave themselves a look inspired by the breakdance crews performing alongside the hip-hop artists in all the downtown clubs. Using iron-on letters and Carvel ice cream t-shirts, the Beastie Boys essentially branded themselves with the names they'd use for the rest of their lives. Adam Yauk became MCA. Mike Diamond shortened his name to Mike D. And Adam Horowitz took the name Ad-Rock. Or the King Ad-Rock. Yeah. And this is how we will be referring to all of them from this point on. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah. MCA, Mike D., and Ad-Rock. But as MCA, Mike D, and Ad-Rock began hanging out with Rick Rubin more and more, drummer Kate Schellenbach, who had taken the rap name Kate the Mate, she was starting to fade out as a member of the Beastie Boys. Yeah, because MCA, Ad-Rock, and Mike D, they were starting to do more things with Rick and not always remembering to include Kate. Like when Rick went out and bought the three of them uh, matching red and black Puma tracksuits with matching Puma sneakers with the fat laces and and matching do-rags. Yeah. And Rick even got one for himself, too. There's pictures. There's There's so many pictures of them wearing these stupid fucking outfits. With their arms crossed. (laughs) Oh, like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and And Rick Rubin paid for all this shit. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he foots the bill most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rick Rubin paid for all this shit. Yeah, you know? he fit the bill most definitely. Yeah. And they looked like a bunch of assholes. <laughs> like the do rags <laughs> looked terrible because they're just trying to copy hip hop style. Right. It's not their own style at this point. They're trying to copy hip hop style, and they're also trying to copy what they think is hip hop attitude. You know what they think is hip hop behavior. Now, Kate. She tried rapping live for the first few gigs where the Beasties did half hardcore, half rap. And, you know, it, and there are, you know, there's video of this on YouTube. It usually featured them reading the rhymes that they wrote off of notebook paper. Yeah. But while the dudes were all into it, Kate found that the more she tried it, the more she realized that rap just wasn't her thing. Plus, while the Beasties did do a couple of performances of Cookie Puss with Kate that featured rap instead of the prank phone calls... The one time they tried copying the call directly resulted in a disastrous gig at Lamass Studio 54. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They they performed that night as part of the Band Wars show. All right. Band Wars. Get it? Star Wars. Uh, you, we, we, yeah. We must say this is 1983. So yeah. Return of the Jedi just came out. Right. They, they had the font and everything. Yeah. which is, <laughs> It's a show with music and no wars. Yeah. Right. So on the flyer, they were billed as the Beastie Boys with a Y. I know that's more of a visual joke, but yeah. I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> with a Y? Yeah. Beastie, 
Beast oh, Y. With that kind of Y, yeah. It's a visual joke. <laughs> so they did the show March 7, 1984. And at this show, they decided to recreate the phone call to Carvel, like you said. So they got a friend backstage with a mic to pretend she was a Carvel lady while Adrock berated her on his mic <laughs> on stage. And it didn't translate well. Nah. I mean, it was okay, but the worst was yet to come. <laughs> Because, you know, they were, remember, they were acting like teenagers. They're trying to look cool to their friends. They're, they're thinking they're being really funny with their antics. You know, morons. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carolina. I'm a moron. I, I, I do the same. I totally get it. <laughs> so it started the night where they're backstage in their dressing room and they got a case of beer for their dressing room. And of course, they didn't have a bottle opener. Because, I don't know, they didn't stick it to their keys yet. You know, that, that's what you do when you get older. Yeah. So a very underage Mike D was walking around looking for a bottle opener, just asking everyone and anyone and pretty much attracting the attention that these kids want to drink illegally. Yeah. <laughs> at the club. Because they looked 17. Absolutely. <laughs> this is not like Beverly Hills 90210 shit. They, they, they were children. Yeah. And Studio 54, they were already like, the club was dealing with fines and doing illegal shit. They had just reopened from getting shut down for tax evasion. Mm -hmm. They were already on thin ice. So this wasn't looking good. So they took the beer away from the kids. And then Mike D, really pissed off that he doesn't get his Heineken, he goes on stage with his fake British accent and he starts talking shit on the managers at the club, Ugh. calling them out for being corrupt. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this place is run by the mafia. Look, look at these scumbags over here. They won't even let me have a beer. What, what's a child to do these days? <laughs> and that's when the manager said, like, that's it. They're out of here. So they got the bouncers to take care of them. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how else to say it. They got the bouncers to take care of them. Take care of them means that they killed them. No, 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 no. no. That, I mean, maybe they are mobsters, but yeah. they're not going to kill children yeah. and make it look like an accident. Get these beasties some cement boots to go with their do-rags. <laughs> Bunch of animals. <laughs> anyway, so, so they get kicked out of Studio 54, like literally kicked out. DJ Jazzy Jeff, Uncle Phil style kicked out. <laughs> you know? So MCA, Mike, and Adrock get thrown out into the alley, nearly beaten up. Dave Skilkin, who was just their friend, just sitting backstage, also literally gets thrown out into the street. And everyone has to leave. Kate, please leave. Everyone has to leave. And stay out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when it was kind of one of those parts where Kate's like, I can't really take them anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Kate's definitely the mature one. She's very of mature. The, yeah, yes. like when you watch that, uh, the public access TV show, like she looks like she's does not belong with right. these little assholes. I like mean, she looks like she's above, like even yeah. like her behavior, his, her look, everything. Like Kate's miles ahead and years beyond these guys. That's true. It wasn't like she was devoid of any humor though. She's no. like very funny, very bright girl. It's just that, it wasn't meshing well with uh, these guys scaling back their, their, you know, their maturity and just turning into crazy antics. Yeah, because they are scaling. I mean, that's a very good point. That's a, they're scaling back maturity. They are regressing. Yes. <laughs> like, thanks to Rick. Yeah, thanks to Rick, because Rick is really into wrestling. And Rick is very much like loves the heel face mentality, like that sort of push and pull. Like he loves the heel mentality yeah. in in wrestling. The that's going to you know, yell at you and call you a uh, the, fuckhead. The theatrical way of doing things, yeah. just, just crazy antics, doing it for fun, for the hell yeah. of it. And you know, and that's the thing. It wasn't necessarily the chaos of the shows that caused Kate Schellenbach to leave, and it wasn't really the immature behavior of the bandmates. Kate didn't leave. 
Kate was pushed out. Yeah. And she was specifically pushed out by Rick Rubin while she was on a month-long nightclub tour of Europe because Rick, at the time, was a sexist dickhead who, quote, didn't like the sound of women rapping. Mm -hmm. Basically, Rick Rubin told MCA, Mike D, and Ad-Rock that under his direction, they could become the first white rap group to break big. But that would only happen if they dropped Kate Schellenbach from the group. Yeah. So instead of like a group of cool local kids playing music together, he wanted them to be characters of what cool rappers should look and act like. And according to Rick, that includes objectifying women and acting like an arrogant jerk. Yeah. You know, no girls allowed to get rid of slimy girls <laughs> like he was their hobs to the Calvin. Yeah. You know? uh, so remember, Rick, as you said, was big into wrestling. And as a fan, he knew that the most interesting characters in wrestling were the villains, mm -hmm. the, the bad guys, the heel. Yes, the ones with the attitude who couldn't give a rat's ass about anybody or anything, because that's theater, folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just... <laughs> so, so like you said, like when Kate went back to that trip from Europe, uh, she ran into the guys at a nightclub at Area, and she saw their dumbass outfits and <laughs> realized <laughs> the, the do rags. Yeah, this is the end of the road for her. And so MCA pulled Kate aside and told her gently, like. You know, it'd be better for it to just be like the three of us, you know, but we could still work on some music projects together. You know, we'll do other stuff. You know, it just can't be this right now. Yeah. And Kate, you know, she started to cry and she ran in the bathroom and she was so embarrassed. You know, she felt alienated from from her friends that she'd known her entire teenage life. And they, they were good friends. They spent weekends together. They they went on trips together. And but, you know, she she understood she even though she was very embarrassed, she understood that. And as months went by. They continued their friendship, but they didn't collaborate again musically. And so Kate decided to move on and, and just focus on on school. She had a new relationship. And years later, you know, she joined a band with her old school bag lady friends and, and, and also continued a good friendship with the Beastie Boys, with the guys years later when, when they all grew up and realized how dumb everybody was. Yeah, because they, I mean, they talk about it in the, the Beastie Boys documentary. Like, they fully admit, like, yeah, you know, Ad-Rock Ad said, like, yeah, I saw her in a bodega, like, a couple of months later and just didn't talk to her. Yeah. You know, like, they were dicks. They were ashamed. <laughs> like, they were, they were ashamed. very ashamed of themselves. Yeah. But the thing is, like, you know, when they got back together years later, when they continued their friendship after the Beastie Boys stopped being dickheads, because that's pretty much what all the next episode is going to be about. <laughs> the beginning of the dickhead era. Yeah, just just the dickhead era. It's like, that's just one. And then they, you know, they grow up a little bit. Uh, but, you know, once they reconnected in the 90s, the Beastie Boys ended up putting out three albums on their Grand Royal record label by Kate's band, After the Beasties. And that band was Luscious Jackson. Sunlight coming near, a new day, a new night, I knew I could regain my sight. 
love that song. Buzzworthy. Yeah, I think I had this CD when I was a kid. It was great. I would great. imagine so. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, it's Luscious Jackson. It's just a, one of those wonderful 90s hits. Yeah. Like, it just immediately takes you back like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> but concerning the Beasties and Rick Rubin, it was around the time of Kate's departure that Rick met a fellow future impresario of the rap game at Danceteria. And this fellow future rap impresario had been quite impressed that a white boy from Long Island could produce something as sick as the Teela Rock track, It's Yours. His name was Russell Simmons. And while he, like Africa Bombada, has proved to be such a monster that he moved to a country without an extradition treaty with the United States to escape prosecution for his crimes, yeah, you can't tell the Beastie Boys story or even the story of hip-hop without mm-hmm. talking about Russell Simmons' contributions. Now, we'll fully get into what Russell Simmons was doing before he came into the Beastie Boys story on the next episode. But when Russell Simmons met Rick Rubin, Russell was one of the few successful hip-hop managers in New York, responsible for such luminaries as Spider-D, the aforementioned Jimmy Spicer, and the legendary Curtis Blow. Bricks in a bus, brakes on a car, brakes to make you a superstar. Brakes to win and brakes to lose, but these here brakes will rock your shoes. And these are the brakes. Break it up, break it up, break it up. that could happen to you. These, These are the, the breaks. breaks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I memorized, I loved that song when I was a kid. Uh, obviously it was, that song came out way before my time, but my parents, I remember when I was a kid, they would buy those things. I guess you can on scene on TV or something that time life music presents. Exactly. <laughs> remember the days, remember the old days. Oh boy, Bob, do I ever. <laughs> when music was music. Yes. <laughs> My parents bought one of those, like the best of the 70s. Yeah. And I remember I used to play it all the time. And Curtis Blow, The Breaks, was one of the songs. So I memorized it because I loved it so much. I was like one of the Beastie Boys, like with my parents, like huge, like, you know, CD player thing. Yeah. And just like trying to learn it and everything. But I didn't become a Beastie Boy, though. No, you, you know, did not. No, I, I just dropped in and went to, oh, dolls you know, or something. <laughs> anyway. And actually, the funny thing is Mike D's first concert when he was about 14, 15 was at Madison Square Garden that he went to with his older brothers and the headliners. This is amazing, amazing bill. Crazy lineup. Headliners were the Commodores and the opening act was Curtis Blow and the middle act was Bob Marley and the Whalers. Uh, it, this was in 1980, so it was the second to last show before Bob died. That's a crazy fucking show. I know. <laughs> I would have loved to go. I mean, could you imagine? Yeah. Like, that's, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a crazy, especially your first show. My yeah. first, I know I've said it before, my first show was fucking Kid Rock and Power Man 5000. 
But the, you still had a great time. I did have a fantastic time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Curtis Blow even said, like, you know, when I went on tour with the Commodores, I had a great time. Yeah. You know, and, and he was like, it was really, really cool, too. So it was cool for me as well, guys. <laughs> so, so, you know. So, okay. So the Beastie Boys meet Russell Simmons, right? Russell Simmons met the Beastie Boys. Actually, he actually watched them play one night. Well, you know, where their set, like their set was half hardcore, half hip hop set that they were doing. He actually saw that. And he told him, listen, your hardcore stuff that, you know, it's OK. Yeah. But, and when you rap, that's pretty cool. That that will stick to that. But why do you go like when, when you right before you do your rap stuff, why do you go backstage and change into these dumbass red sweatsuits <laughs> and matching Jurex? Are you, are you can start smoking duchies now. What the, what the hell? Take off all the take them off your heads, please. And they, whose idea was this? And Rick is like, well, I idea. <laughs> we'll talk about this later, Rick. All right. <laughs> so the Russell, Russell Simmons, he took the Beastie Boys under his wing, you know, and, and the five of them, you know, Rick, MCA, Ad-Rock, Mike D, and of course, Russell, they were a team now because they were going to bring the, the Beastie Boys out into the mainstream. That was their plan. So Russell knew that and they would hang out sometimes at Danceteria, you know, they'd be just drinking lots of screwdrivers and stuff. And there was one night that Russell Simmons like, we're going to go to Disco Fever. And he told the Beastie Boys, like, you three guys, change into your normal clothes now. Because <laughs> they, they threw those away. They're, they're in the trash. The, yeah. the rats are eating them right now. <laughs> and he said, okay, we're going to go to the Bronx. Yeah, and Disco Fever is like one of the biggest hip hop stages in New York huge, City. I mean, that, this is like going to Disco Fever is a fucking, I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. up on And it's intimidating. Yes, <laughs> of course. I mean, everyone played there. Grandmaster Flash, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, you know, uh, Crush Groove, the, the end, the, the the last scene of the Crush Groove is in Disco Fever. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Disco Fever in that scene, the white guy uh, playing his DJ, that's Rick Rubin wearing a Husker Do t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and the Beastie Boys perform there, of course, and uh -huh. there's you know, a new edition and all that. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun movie. Yeah. But anyway, so Russell Simmons is like, okay, I'm taking these three white boys up to the Bronx, up to 167th Street and Jerome. Mm -hmm. Here we go. And so they go in there and it's like, kind of quiet there's like not a lot of people there and they're like all right whatever and russell simmons like i got i gotta go talk to the uh to the owner cell all right and so they're they're talking with you know you know and beastie boys are just standing there just like i don't know if i should sit <laughs> or what you know don't touch anything okay okay we won't touch anything and then russell simmons hands them all microphones it's like you guys are gonna go rap now and they're like now yes right now and so there was no stage for them they had to kind of stand like right next to the like the booth the dj booth and the bar while people are going back and forth just getting drinks and just hanging out oh. and they're like all right the dj is going to play you a beat and you are going to rap in front of this bronx all black crowd and so the beastie boys started rapping and they and they did it. It was like a three minute thing. They're just working whatever rhymes that they could remember on the top of their head that they've been practicing with Rick and NYU. And they just got through it. They did it. The three of them, you know, yo, yo, wave <laughs> <laughs> your hands in the air, do whatever you can. And then when they were done, it was fine. <laughs> Honestly, there's no climax to this. The, the, the whole point of it is the fact that like no one booed. Yeah. And that that is what was a success. That That's what made it successful. They the Beastie Boys played the disco fever and they were not booed. They were they, no one. Well, OK, no one cared. But everyone just <laughs> really? went, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? That kind of like 
Eh, eh, sure, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, they could stay. Meant that the Beastie Boys could stay. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next part, of course. Yeah. It's them actually finding their footing, being themselves, but also taking on this whole new genre while it's also developing on its own. It's very fascinating. And so the Beastie Boys, they took off the do-rags and they were just themselves. And who they were was kind of hip-hop, but it was also kind of punk. Simply put, it was a style all their own. And that style put the Beastie Boys well on their way to becoming a cultural phenomenon unto themselves, born of both worlds. Whoa. <laughs> Where's Planet Birthday? <laughs> I think it's, it, it's, it's in the constellation... Celebration. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, so now we're halfway through. All right. This is exciting. Now yeah. we're going to get into a lot of things. We're going to get into recording, of course. We're getting licensed to Ill, Paul's Boutique, the big three in the 90s, of course. At the Hello Nasty is going to come much later. I'm very excited for this. Extremely excited. No, yeah. we're, we're, we're about to get into like beastie, beastie. Like we're, <laughs> we're fucking getting into it. Yep. Yeah. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. As always, No Dogs in Space comes out every two weeks, uh, every other Thursday. But if you want to get reminded of when a new episode comes out, you can follow either of us on uh, Instagram. I'm at Marcus Parks. Carolina Danger Hidalgo. And we also have a No Dogs in Space Instagram at no dogs pod um, we also post like you know cool pictures and stuff you know about from bands that we're covering at the time yeah uh, and my whiteboard sometimes sometimes I'm, I'm a, it's a it's a nerdy thing that i <laughs> hope people like i don't know yeah yeah if you want to get it like an inside look into like how an episode is constructed you yeah. know how we put this shit together yeah follow no dogs pod and of course every single episode that we do comes with a spotify playlist so just search my name marcus parks or search no dogs in space beastie boys part three in the spotify search bar and a playlist will come up featuring every song that's featured on uh, spotify that's the interesting thing about this series is that so much old school hip-hop is not on spotify it's not really anywhere but a lot of very uh enterprising and very generous hip-hop fans have uploaded a lot of their 12 inch singles their old 12 inch singles to youtube yeah so that's how we're able to hear a lot of this really really rare shit so thank if any of those people are listening thank you thank you so much yes for uh allowing all of us to hear this uh, wonderful music that may have been lost otherwise. And speaking of music, and I can do that segue all day. (laughs) Speaking of music. Speaking of the subject of this show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm a natural. I don't need to practice. So uh, speaking of music, of course, we like to showcase a band at the end of every episode. Just just any local band from your area or, you know, if you're in a band or you're a singer or a musician or whatever... Any, anything at all. You make any kind of noise whatsoever. And you'd like for us to play your song at the end of an episode. We'd love to uh, just, you know, send it to no dogs in space at gmail.com. You know, a band camp, a Spotify link or a YouTube link, w- whatever you can that we would love to listen to. I mean, we, we've been listening to a lot of songs. So many songs. We're going through hundreds, uh, actually thousands of emails and, and just we got long lists going on. <laughs> but you know what? We got so much like amazing talent. 
So I'm very happy. And so the next band, the band for this week is Cheap Perfume. Yep, I cheap love perfume. them. I love them. I've been meaning to put them on eventually. So I'm glad that they're they're finally going to get their due. Oh yeah, Cheap Perfume out of Colorado Springs. And of course, you can find their stuff on Spotify. Just type in Cheap Perfume. They got a couple of albums, fucking great. So if you have a band, just please email us at nodugsinspace at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get it on. So here is Cheap Perfume. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And we'll see y'all in two weeks. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Our fear has made us gullible. Our bully roads have taken control. And now they're yelling off with our heads. We've been through this. We ended it. Or so we thought it had been fought. It's like an army back from the dead. The racist got a PR firm. Hired men in fancy shirts but have the same ideology. We've had to say a lot of stuff we thought was fucking obvious. Like, yes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.